Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. Tell the truth. No, you have to say your bullshit. It continues to lie. Lie, 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 continue. Tell the truth for us. Be a man. Show your family, show your kids that you're a man. Oh, show my kids that I'm a killer when I'm show not. Your... Interestingly enough, one of the markers had a unique feature to it. Right. And Dr. Daniels was really taken with this feature. He had never seen it during the course of his uh, career. I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Where Justice Lies. Jeff Abramowski was sentenced to life in prison for the brutal beating death of his friend and drug supplier, Dick Crandall. To get that conviction, the state put a lot of weight on a trace amount of DNA found under one of Dick's fingernails. But what about the strands of hair Dick was clutching in his hand, and the blood found in his sink? We'll get to that. Anyway, was it really Jeff's DNA under Dick's fingernail? Remember, the state said that the trace amount found could not exclude Jeff. They also said it had a unique marker on it, a marker so unique the lab tech had never seen it before. And it just so happened, Jeff also had that marker. So it must be Jeff's DNA, right? But let me ask you something. What have you touched so far today? Can you remember? What if I told you that you left trace DNA on every single thing that you've touched today? That's right. We're always leaving contact or touch DNA behind. Just consider, in the fall of 2018, a Florida man mailed pipe bombs to several high-profile politicians. Before he was apprehended, this is what Anthony Roman, a security expert, told the Associated Press. As human beings, we are filtering off our DNA everywhere we walk, everywhere we sit. Let that sink in a bit. We are leaving our DNA everywhere. But do judges, juries, cops, lawyers really understand DNA? I mean, let's be honest. Do any of us really understand DNA? We hear DNA was found and we immediately assume the person it belonged to is guilty. And surely that's the case for the most part when blood or semen is involved. What about when it's just a trace amount? Not blood, not semen. Here's what Prosecutor Rob Parker told the jury in his opening statement of Jeff's trial. He said the state's DNA expert would testify that Jeff's DNA is so unique that the chances of it belonging to anyone else is 1 in 7 million. Now, what attorneys say during opening and closing statements should not be considered evidence, and juries are told that before the trial even begins. But those words have to have an effect, right? After all, we're taught to believe that DNA is proof, absolute 100% proof. Here is Candy Zuliger, the lab director for Trinity DNA Solutions. She was hired by Jeff's attorney to be his witness. I think people hear the word DNA and they're like, oh, it must be him. And well, no, that's, that's not what they're saying. They're saying it, it could be him, this is a possibility it's him, but you have another expert come in and say, well, you can't prove that it's him. 
yes, I see that that profile is consistent with it. People just want a yes or no answer, and DNA is not that simple anymore. I asked Candy because I don't believe she has a stake in whether Jeff is innocent or guilty. I believe her explanation of DNA is unbiased, so I asked her if she'd tell me a little more about trace DNA. What does that mean when you find trace DNA at a crime scene? Well, there's plenty of reasons for people's DNA to, to be someplace, and that's what I think a lot of juries aren't understanding, and perhaps we're not doing a good job educating the juries or, or the judges. Uh, you can have somebody's DNA underneath your, your fingernails or on, on another item, and they had nothing to do with that item. Um, there can be secondary DNA transfer. There can be numerous things that can occur with DNA, especially epithelial cells, um, where the DNA could get there and somebody may not have even touched that item. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's actually scary. Yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. So, I mean... Yes, it's called secondary DNA transfer. Oh, okay. And And with the newer kits that we have, they're so sensitive that we we will rarely ever get a single source profile. It's almost always a mixture because we're picking up anything um, from anyone who's ever touched it or a secondary DNA profile uh, that's popping up on it. Wow, so in other words, we should be walking around wearing gloves and masks if we don't want to get um, you know, charged with a crime. Well, Absolutely. Now, I had never really heard that before, so I asked her to expound on that just a bit. She went on to tell me about a little experiment she recently conducted in her office. Well, well, what one of my um, analysts did is she took my the mouse to my computer, touched the door handle that she had previously sterilized, and she was able to transfer my DNA. So I never touched her door handle. Oh, wow. But my DNA was on it. Oh, man. So that's a secondary transfer. And we did it in, in all the samples that we tested it on. So, but, but this is supported in the literature, but I don't think this is being talked about um, when we go into court. Are you catching this? Your DNA can be on something you haven't even touched, something you've never touched. So in other words, if Dick Crandall had gone out and fussed with the jacuzzi that Jeff recently helped him install, he could, in theory, end up with some of Jeff's DNA under his nail. That's important because the DNA found under Dick's nail was not blood, it was not skin that had been scratched off, It was trace or touch DNA. Now here's the kicker. When Trinity was hired by the defense to do DNA testing on Jeff's behalf, as per the norm, Zuliger's lab contacted the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and asked for the nail clippings so they could run their own tests. And guess what? They only found Dick Crandall's DNA after running all their tests. Jeff's was not present. No one else's DNA was present. So they asked for the actual result sample FDA produced and did in fact find Dick Crandall's DNA and secondary DNA that could not exclude Jeff. Why is this important? Well, there are only three reasons why Jeff's DNA would be in the FDLE results and not in the Trinity results. The first is that the amount of trace DNA was so small, so minute, that the FDLE lab consumed all of it while they were doing their testing. The second reason could be that Jeff's DNA was planted. I want to be clear, all my reporting has produced no evidence to suggest that this is the case. The third reason is that there was some sort of cross-contamination. If there was a contaminant in that sample that FDLE extracted, I'm not going to be able to tell you the difference when I ran the second one because 
um, I'm running their, their sample that has, if it had something in it, it had a mixture in it. Is that from a contaminant or is that a real mixture? I can't tell you because I'm working from their extract. Now, here's the other thing that makes me question this smoking gun, the state's DNA evidence. Here is the state's DNA expert, Gary Daniels, from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, talking about the DNA mixture that helped convict Jeff. My result was this. I could say that neither Jeff Abramowski or Jeffrey Abramowski nor Courtney Crandall could be excluded as the contributor, as a contributor from the DNA mixture. That means that they were both included, in my opinion. Looking at the DNA mixture, they both appeared to be present. Um, and then um, I looked at the secondary profile and concluded, uh, once Mr. Crandall had been, um, had been removed from that, the foreign profile, uh, that Jeffrey Abramowski could not be excluded as a contributor to the resolved DNA profile that I had found. And the resolution that I, when I talk about the resolve profile, I'm talking about, um, I think, two or three of the loci of the 13. The other loci were ambiguous and part of a mixture, but in each case... Okay, so what's interesting here is that Daniels is talking about matching Jeff at two or three loci out of 13. In other words, they use 13 areas or loci to search for a match. A full DNA profile would match on all 13. The state lab only matched Jeff on two, and that, according to Zuliger, is not a big deal. Because you can't say it's somebody's DNA at, at two loci. I mean, that's re- I can match you at two loci. I can match you at, at four loci. So the statistics that they gave were, were mixture statistics at 12 loci. Normally, you don't even mention this because it gets so confusing. But that's where you went, in, I guess, in the testimony and the report. So what she's saying is that finding a match at two or three or even four loci is not that big of a deal. So why wasn't this evidence challenged more by Jeff's attorney? Well, I promise we will address that, and the reason will make your head spin. Now, as a general rule, whenever we hear DNA, we take it as proof. Now remember, other DNA was found on Dick's body. He was clutching strands of hair. And no, it wasn't Dick's own hair. And yes, the police were able to figure out whose hair it was. It wasn't Jeff's. But that's not what the cops told Jeff. Now, a point of clarification before we go further. In this country, law enforcement agents are allowed to lie to suspects during interrogations. As you'll hear one of the detectives say, their goal is to get to the truth. So Brevard County Sheriff's agents Allie Roberts and Gary Harrell repeatedly told Jeff Abramowski that his hair was found in Dick Crandall's hand. In fact, during an attempt to make Jeff confess to the murder, agents told Jeff 18 times during a 90-minute interview that the dead man was found clutching his hair. Here's just a sample. The first four are Agent Allie Roberts, and the final four are Agent Gary Harrell. Okay, in his hand, there's some hair. There's some hair. Guess whose hair that is? Your DNA is under this dead man's fingernails. Your hair is clutched in his hand. Your hair flushed in the dead Show man's me where hand. Explain to a jury how your hair is in a dead man's hand. Explain to a judge and jury how your DNA is underneath his fingernails. This is your DNA, and your DNA is under his fingernails, and there's hair in his hand. I did not and your, your DNA is there. 
and give you a noogie on the head the 13th, the last time he saw you, where there'd be hair under his knuckles or whatever. Oh, yeah. Not in hair, it's gonna stick around his hands. Doing the hair, we got hair, we got fingernail DNA, stuffed DNA on, on Dick's body. When you listen to the interrogation, and I believe the entire thing will be available to listen to at MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com, you will hear for yourself just how shocked Jeff is to hear this. He's incredulous, asking for proof. He denies even going to Dick's house that weekend. He denies an altercation. He denies killing Dick, and he swears there's no way his hair could be in the dead man's hand. And we learn that he's right. The cops were lying to him. It was not his hair. But as I said earlier, that is allowed lying during a police interrogation. But I want you to listen to Agent Gary Harrell on the stand when Jeff's attorney asks him if he ever told Jeff that the hair belonged to him and about the DNA report, the one police tell Jeff about during the interrogation. So you told Jeff his hair was in Dick's hand. I did not. You didn't? No, ma'am, did not. Anybody tell him that? We told him his DNA was there under his fingernails. We went very clearly on that. And yes, uh, Allie Roberts mentioned that there was his hair was in his hand. He assumed that, I believe. But I can tell you, that report had not come back yet. We knew that the fingernail DNA was, was related to Abramowski. I did not uh, tell him that his hair was in Dick's hand. Misleading an interviewee is permissible in your profession, right? That can occur. I mean, when we work investigations, uh, we uh, assume certain things with certain evidence. We reconstruct. We uh, go with what we believe the evidence is going to show. Sometimes that may appear to be uh, not like the evidence will later come out to be, but I can tell you, uh, no one including myself, that day misled him knowingly. And I don't think we misled him at all. I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, we did not lie to him or mislead him about evidence. But you could have. Oh, I could have, yes, ma'am. You're allowed to. Certainly. It's part of your job, right? My job's to find the truth. We don't go around lying to people. Um except he and Allie Roberts did. They lied to Jeff, which is allowed, and then lied on the witness stand, which of course is not allowed, which is illegal. The charge is perjury, and according to a criminal defense lawyer friend of mine, it is rarely prosecuted. Harrell said on the stand that the FDLE report had not come back yet. Well, we have the report, and it includes the fingernail evidence and the hair evidence, and it's dated July 29th, 2002. Jeff's interrogation was August 15th, 2002. They already had the results of tests on the hair, and they knew full well whose hair was in Dick's hand. To testify that they weren't misleading Jeff about the evidence is, well, quite frankly, absurd. Uh, We'll get to that shortly. So my question to police is, if you think you have the right suspect, why lie? Now, I reached out to lead agent Gary Harrell, who's now retired, but he has not returned to my messages. So I'll have to leave that as a rhetorical question for now. If police think they have the right suspect, why lie? It gets worse. That lie wasn't the only one. There's an allegation of another lie. 
and to listeners of seasons one and two of Murder on the Space Coast, this will sound a little familiar. A jailhouse snitch. Remember the jailhouse informant we introduced in the first episode, Robert Ohala? Remember he was the one who went to a homicide agent and said that Jeff confessed the murder to him? Well, we haven't told you this, but Jeff's first trial ended in a mistrial. Why? Because prosecutor Rob Parker mentioned that Robert Ohala would be testifying during his opening statement. But then the prosecutor did not produce Ohala. So a mistrial was declared and Jeff was given a new trial. But what happened to Ohala? Why didn't he testify? Well, Ohala said he didn't want to be a false witness. And all these years later, I tracked him down and asked him to tell me what happened. In most cases, I wouldn't give much credence, much weight to jailhouse snitches who later recant their testimony. But Ohala's case is different because he refused to actually testify against Jeff. He didn't recant. He all out refused to testify. And that caught my attention. When I reached out to the imprisoned Ohala via snail mail, I eventually received a phone call from his daughter, who said he was leery of writing me back and would rather speak to me on the telephone. Actually, he specified a legal phone call, which prison officials are not supposed to record or monitor. Obviously, this was a guy who was paranoid about being listened to. I arranged to have a lawyer set up a phone call with me present, and she turned the phone over to me when he got on. I asked him, how did you get involved in all this? Ohala told me that lead investigator Gary Harrell was already working with another jail inmate, who was cooperating with him on another case, and Harold got that guy to talk to Ohala about trying to get Jeff, his cellmate, to talk about his case. Well, one day, uh, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how it happened. Well, they kept it. I got a, the guy told that guy he should talk to me, the, the detective, and two detectives came and got me. And they took me to the um, Bavard County and uh, into the sheriff's department. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and the one guy left for a minute, and, and the other guy told me, he says, well, you know, Jeff did it. And he said, uh, this, this, he said, Jeff used a hammer and, and killed this guy. And I said, sir, I can't, I can't say that and feel comfortable, you know. And he says, well, you got to. And I said, well, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I said, what am I going to get for this? Ohala said the agents hinted at helping with his sentencing for violating probation on a 1997 burglary charge. Apparently, Ohala thought he was facing anywhere between 60 years and life. So he said he gave them a statement saying that Jeff admitted to killing Dick. The eyebrow-raising part, however, is that Ohala says Jeff told him he jumped on Dick and killed him with his hands and by stomping him. But we know, and the police know, that Dick was killed by a hammer and a clothing iron. So, what gives? Even I paid a tape, a tape, a tape interview, some, some kind of like tape, and I said, well, yeah, Jeff said, Jeff killed him, beat him with his hands and all this, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to get 60 years. I mean, I, sure. I said, oh God, I don't want 60 years. But then I felt bad what happened, what I just did. But he kept telling me after he got separated from the other guy again, he says, look, man, you didn't say the hammer. And I said, I'm not gonna say the hammer. I, I, I mean, I, I feel bad, uncomfortable doing any of this. Well, I just fix it all, I said, we don't need you. I said, well, that's fine. So I go back to prison. Well, no, I go and get sentenced the next day after that, and I got eight and a half years. So I was kind of like happy. I said, now this is over with. But it wasn't over with. A year and a half later, Ohala suddenly found himself being transported back to the Brevard County Jail from Jefferson Correctional in North Florida, near the border with Georgia. 
He said he had no idea why, but he would soon learn that it was so that he could be a witness against Jeff at his trial. Ohala says he was met by both Harrell and Prosecutor Rob Parker. And he comes and meets me, and the prosecutor both. And they come to me and says, now you're going to have to say that the hammer, that he killed him with the hammer. And I'm oh my gosh. Well, they take me, that was the day before that, that he was going to trial. Yeah. Well, they, put me back, they put me back in my cell, and some of the guys came in there and picked the lock with a checkerboard. Said, that sounds believable. They used a checkerboard down on the bottom, and double locked it, and they came in there and they beat me up, but not in the face. They kicked me, kicked me, and said, yeah, you do, you're a snitch, and all this. I said, I ain't no snitch, just don't worry about it. I got this. I got this, ain't no snitches, and they moved me out of that cell. Well, the next day, I go in the courtroom, and I stand up and tell the truth. I say, Your Honor, the prosecutor right there and that man back there, he told me what to say. I said, he told me to say that Jeff used a hammer, and the, and the prosecutor stood up and said, I think he said he objected, and I, maybe the judge said, I'm not sure for sure. He said, well, you can't object, he's your witness. And uh, it, it was a mistrial, and, and it was over with. I mean, he didn't. He didn't get convicted, so I thought I helped him by doing the right thing. Right. You know, that, that, that's all I can say about that. But since then, now, sir, I, my life has been miserable because I did that. His life's been miserable, and so has Jeff's. That trial was declared a mistrial, but Jeff was tried again and, well, you know the story, convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Ohala says that he's been framed for other crimes since then, suffered through endless transfers and harassment, all he claims because he refused to play ball in Brevard County. Here we are again chatting late last year. The other voice you'll hear is Jeff's former attorney, Laura Seamer, who helped me with the call. And I couldn't ever figure out why, and, and the man came up to me one day and he said, look, you're in trouble because of what you did a long time ago at another trial. Mm. And I never could figure out what it was until one day I was sitting there and his attorney called me um, when I was getting, I was in confinement over it. It's like they're one step ahead. Every time, every time somebody wants to call and talk to me about this, about Jim Evernowski, I mean, they put me in confinement or something. I haven't had any, D, I've had one DR yeah, in 18 years. That, that's what happened last time. When I talked to you two years ago, then all of a sudden they moved you to another prison. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's because of that, because they're trying to cover this stuff up. They can take care of their own. And I get beat up because of it by the cops. They try, man, this is, between the heads and my case together, I'm telling you, it's political. It, it's gotta be. I, I don't know why, I didn't, I didn't know why they wanted to get Jeff or why they wanted to do that, but that's all true. And, and the officer did, Gary, whoever his name was, and I stood up in that courtroom. Okay, now I want to say again, I've reached out to lead agent Gary Harrell to hear his side. I want to hear what he has to say, but he has not returned my messages. I even wrote him a letter. I also reached out through the Brevard County Sheriff's Office to Agent Carlos Reyes, who interviewed Ohala in 2002. So far, I have not been granted an interview. I did, however, ask Prosecutor Rob Parker, now retired, about Ohala and his claims that he had been coerced. Robert Ohala, he was the inmate that I originally was going to use yes. as... Um was, did he, I don't recall him ever claiming that Abramowski coerced him to say anything. No, no, he's saying um, that Harold did. That Harold coerced Oshala. Yeah. Uh, well, he may have said that. I, I can't dispute that. Right. right. Um, I can't dispute that. 
John, they'll say a lot of times they say a lot of things when they get up on the stand and they don't want to testify. Uh, and they're, yeah. they're savvy enough to understand that when they say certain things, that that pretty much destroys their credibility as a witness. And uh, so it would not surprise me if, in fact, he said that. And, and that's when I said, OK, we can't use him. I would believe that the inmate of Shala uh, would say uh, that I was coerced by the de- deputies and I didn't want to be here and they made me come here and you know I, I don't want to do this because it's not true I, I you know I could see I could see an inmate saying that right right um, I would take that with a grain of salt as the prosecutor based on my training and experience and and that's why I, I as a matter of practice hated snitches i hated using them i always told them no i don't want to use them the police wanted to use them and i just said no i'm yeah. just not putting them up there um just interjecting uh an appeal you know yeah. uh, into, into the proceeding so we we just i just generally tried not to do that but in this particular case i relented and um uh, fortunately it was a mistrial and we didn't do that in as it turned out, it was better to put on the entire case, even the defense case, uh, and let the jury make the decision. But now, what if I told you that Ohala wasn't the only inmate in this case to make that claim, that he was fed information to testify against Jeff? Let me introduce you to Richard Scott Mayer, and this piece of paper I'm holding in my hands right now that is notarized and dated May 1st, 2006. It will be available for your viewing at MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com, but it's short enough that I'm just going to read it for you. I, Richard Scott Mayer, do give a sworn statement as to Brevard County Sheriff's Office Detective Gary Harrell, badge 197, did try to solicit information about an inmate I am housed with in the county jail, Jeffrey Abramowski, case number 05-2002-CF-063402. This detective came and picked me up from the county jail on two occasions. The first time he picked me up, he asked me if I knew Mr. Abramowski, and I said no. Then he informed me that I live in the same cell block as him, and described him to me. He told me to get to know him and try to obtain information about his murder case. He said that he would help me get off my charges if I would help him convict Mr. Abramowski. Detective Gary Harrell told me specific information like the murder weapon and how the guy died. The second time he picked me up from the county jail, Detective Harrell talked almost nonstop about Mr. Abramowski. Then I told him that he arrested an innocent man, and he said to wait until the DNA report comes back. I've got the right guy. He then told me that he had a snitch already going to testify against Jeff. I thought this whole situation was strange, so I told Mr. Abramowski what happened. Now, Richard Mayer knew Harold because it was Gary Harrell who arrested him and another man, Charles Edward Peterson, in the beating death of a homeless man after a dispute allegedly over beer. This murder happened as Jeff's first trial was taking place, but arrests in the case were not made until January 2006, six months before Jeff would go to trial a second time. So Richard Mayer, who was homeless himself, refused to cooperate with Harrell. He eventually pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. It would be a short life. He was found hanged to death on September 11, 2013, from an air conditioning vent at Dade Correctional. According to the police report, Mayor left a suicide note in his boxer shorts. 
claiming he and other prisoners were sexually and physically abused on a routine basis by guards. Okay, now I want to go back to the DNA in this case. The DNA found at the crime scene. The one you've heard me mention several times. Dick Crandall was found clutching a tangle of hair. There was also blood found in the trap of the bathroom sink. And according to DNA expert Candy Zuliger, these pieces of evidence are far more compelling than the trace amount of DNA found under one of Dick's fingernails that could not exclude Jeff Abramowski. And as I mentioned earlier, according to Zuliger, Jeff's DNA could have been transferred through secondary contact, like from a pill bottle or sweat on a jacuzzi, for example. I'm not that impressed with, you know, his DNA being underneath the the fingernails, given the relationship between the two people. So I I wouldn't rate that very high as far as helping the the case as far as the DNA against Abramowski. I found the other two a little more interesting, um, that the hair was there um, in the blood and that the, the sink strap had the son's DNA in it. Of course, the hair in the blood wasn't more compelling to the prosecution, which found a way to explain it away. Now, here's what you need to know. And remember my quote from episode one about low-down, dirty people? For example, you need to know this. 78-year-old Dick Crandall, whose wife was in a nursing home, had been living with his 53-year-old drug-addicted girlfriend, Judy Foley, and her 32-year-old drug-addicted son, Bruce Foley. Except Bruce was going by his brother's name, Brian, because there were active arrest warrants for him in his native Alabama. You got all that? They had been living together in a trailer at 2153 Rockway Drive, and they planned to move into the new trailer together, the one where Dick was murdered, located about one street away at 4430 Utica Circle. Oh, and the one other person you'll be meeting is Judy's 49-year-old sister, Rita Acreage, and you guessed it, also a drug addict. Now, she used to be Dick's lover years before he shacked up with Judy. Rita lived in an apartment paid for by her married boyfriend. Yeah, you may need a scorecard to keep all this straight. So back to the other DNA, the hair in the blood. Remember that snarl of hair clutched in the dead man's hand? Well, it belonged to Judy Foley. That's right, Dick's girlfriend. Her hair is clutched in Dick's hand and the blood in the master bathroom sink? Well, that belongs to her son, Bruce. Okay, but now listen, you remember the state of the trailer, right? Boxes everywhere, not a single open space on the counter. Dick was still moving in. And by all indications, they were not moving in with him. Now, Judy, Bruce, and Rita all answered differently when asked how many nights, if any, they spent in the new trailer. The answers ranged from no nights to three nights in the new trailer. Okay, but hair and blood is a little different than touch DNA, right? Obviously, we know. Hair gets everywhere. It does. But when Dick's body was found, they found a few strands of Judy's hair intertwined with two or three of Dick's fingers. I've seen the crime scene photographs. I have them, and I'm actually looking at them right now. I'm not an expert, I know, but it doesn't look like the random piece of hair you might find stuck on your clothing. It's kind of tangled in. Oh, and the blood? Okay, well, maybe Bruce cut himself while shaving. That was the prosecutor's theory. But the trailer had two bathrooms, and this was Dick's. Bruce had his own bathroom, and really, it's not clear if he ever even spent a night in that trailer. But the prosecution still argued away both. They said Judy lived there and her hair was likely everywhere. And again, they said Bruce might have cut himself while shaving. The hair and the blood. 
Well, Judy and her son were around Dick, around the trailer, so no big deal. And what about motive? Why would Dick's girlfriend and or son want Dick dead? Well, as you'll hear on the next episode, there was not a whole lot of love lost. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies. Now, Brian stole, and he also told me, he stole 150 Oxycontin, 100 and some uh, Valiums and some Percocets. I think maybe 20, 30 Valiums and some Percocets that he stole and put in his aunt's car the day that they got into competition, Mother's Day. You get on I call the cops for, uh... <laughs> yeah, the cops already called. Okay. The cops were on the way, they just... Right. This all happened within when, a when were the cops five minute the, period. When were the cops... All this happened? The screwdriver's breaking all, all that? Yeah, all that happened in like five minute period. Okay. Then, he finally he went back up there. Brian did, went back to the other place. After he, swung the, place. After he swung the screwdrivers around? Right. That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.